one of the most exciting things about what's been going on on Instagram is that I feel like certain communities realize that they had power for the first time. Where as a community, when we stand up and say, we're not okay with this and we're gonna draw a line and this behavior is gonna be outside of it, as a close-knit community, we actually have a tremendous amount of power to do that in a way that the wider secular world doesn't always. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The problem of agunot, or what more accurately should be called Masorovot get, that is women who cannot receive a get, or divorce document, from their recalcitrant husbands, is one of the most pressing issues in the Orthodox world today. According to Jewish law, the husband has the exclusive ability to divorce his wife. While halakha demands that he do so in circumstances where his wife requests a divorce, halakha cannot force him to do so and in fact, a forced get is called a get musa, and it would be invalid. And herein lies the problem. A woman who does not have a get, or a valid get, cannot remarry. That is Jewish law, and it leads to some tragic circumstances. Some husbands simply will not free their wives, and attempting to force them to do so might mean that the get won't even work. Ora, the Organization for Resolution of Agunot, is at the forefront of fighting against this problem. According to Ora's website... Ora seeks to eliminate abuse from the Jewish divorce process. Ora works within the parameters of Jewish law and civil law to advocate for the timely and unconditional issuance of a get. Ora believes that the protracted refusal to issue or receive a get is a form of domestic abuse which must never be tolerated. Ora seeks to foster a Jewish community in which a get is never used as a weapon. Ora pursues its mission through Aguna case advocacy early intervention programs, and educational initiatives for aguna prevention. Now, over the past couple of months, the issue of freeing agunot has thankfully been given a new emphasis thanks to a campaign on social media. I spoke to Keshet Starr, the executive director of Ora, about these and other developments. Before we get to that interview, let me remind you to please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Please also go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. Just give a certain number of stars, I hope five, and write one or two sentences saying why, hopefully, you enjoyed the Orthodox Conundrum. Please consider also becoming a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. And finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can help you start. I have experienced producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for my many satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in a single day, or you want to record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffee House Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience now. 
Keshet Star oversees advocacy and early intervention initiatives designed to assist individuals seeking a Jewish divorce, along with prevention initiatives to eliminate abuse from the Jewish divorce process. Keshet has written for outlets such as the Times of Israel, The Forward, and Haaretz, and frequently presents on issues related to Jewish divorce, domestic abuse, and the intersection between civil and religious divorce processes. Keshet has also authored academic work focused on get refusal and domestic abuse and is a Wexner Field Fellow. A graduate of the University of Michigan and the University of Pennsylvania Law School, Keshet lives in central New Jersey with her husband and three young children. Keshet Starr, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's start off by discussing very recent developments. Right before we went on the air, we were talking about this briefly, because the Plight about Gunot seems to be on the front pages, at least from my perspective, in a way that it hasn't been for a very long time. It's capturing people's attention, perhaps because of what's been happening on social media. So what is actually going on right now? So it's a great question. Really, in a word, Instagram. A number of Instagram influencers picked it up. Instagram also has been a space that's really been growing, especially with from women, a lot of religious women connecting on that platform. And what has been really amazing and exciting to see is how much the online conversations have then shifted into on the ground, kind of get grassroots act advocacy and really seeing change in communities, starting with what was happening on social media platforms. And that was Free Chava, right? That was the first one that really caught everyone's attention. And it's really expanded since then. There was a rally yesterday focusing on a particular corrupt beaten or religious court. There are kind of groups forming in different communities that are focused on get cases in those communities or trying to raise awareness more broadly. So it's really spurred just a lot of engagement and activism, especially in communities that weren't so open to having these conversations before. Okay, there's a lot there that I want to unpack. I want to go back, though, to the beginning, and then I'll get to some of the things you just said. So here's a two-part question for you, Keshet. Can you define the problem in general that Ora is attempting to solve, and what does Ora want to do in order to solve it? Very good questions. So essentially, our goal and mission is to take abuse out of the Jewish divorce process. And essentially what we mean by that is that unfortunately, while Jewish divorces can go smoothly, in some situations, the divorce essentially becomes a tool to get something, either to get something out of the divorce or to take revenge or punish the other person. And what it really comes down to is domestic abuse, that when you have a dynamic where one partner is trying to control the other, and then you bring in the get process, the Jewish divorce, it can be sort of a golden opportunity, although that sounds terrible, to maintain that control. And so what we want to do is take that abuse angle out of it. And that impacts active Aguna cases. Agunot are women who are trying to get a Jewish divorce. Agunim would be the term for men who are trying to get this divorce, but it also impacts the way in which Jewish divorce and extortion connect in the divorce process, where we don't want to see the divorce being used in that way. Well, how can you stop it? Unfortunately, Jewish law, we love Jewish law, we're halachic Jews at the same time. This is sort of a negative loophole that some very, very evil husbands can work their way through. What can you do about it? It's the law. So the good news is there are things you can do about it. A huge part of the battle is really awareness and education. We're a close-knit community. And in order to really be part of the community, you have to be accepted. 
So the more we establish a communal policy that this is not okay, this is abuse, and if you're going to behave this way, you have to kind of step outside the circle, the more ability we actually really have to control the decisions other people make. But in addition to that, there are also preventative measures. So things like the halakhic prenuptial agreement, there are things that we can do that can proactively address this problem. So we're not just sitting around like, you know, sitting ducks waiting for it to happen, but there are things that we can do to stop it from happening. Now, what are some of the reasons that a husband wouldn't give a get? I know you said it's a power trip. It's about blackmail. Can you give some specific examples of what husbands will do and say, I will give you a get under the following circumstances, or this is why I won't give you a get under any circumstances? Sure. And so when I started at ORA, I was a case advocate, and I would spend all day on the phone with get refusers. So I heard a lot of these reasons firsthand. Sometimes they'll say it's because they're still in love. They want to continue the relationship and they haven't accepted that the relationship's over. Sometimes they're just angry. One of our advocates was speaking to a recalcitrant husband, a get refuser, and really trying to get to the bottom of why he was withholding a get. And at some point the guy said, well, this isn't going to sound very nice, but it just kind of makes me happy to know that she's suffering and it's because of me. And people can get to that place after years of a toxic relationship and then a really antagonistic divorce. It can really sort of wear down who we are as people. And sometimes it's very much a quid pro quo. I want a certain custody arrangement. And so unless you agree to that, no get. Or I want to keep the house in its entirety. I don't want to share the equity. So if you want the get, then I'm going to keep the house. And what will happen, and we also educate attorneys and judges and the court system about this, because a couple will essentially walk out of court and renegotiate the divorce in order to get the get. The guy will say sometimes, well, this is what the judge said. If you want the get, that's going to be our starting point. We're going to negotiate. And once we get to a place where I feel happy with the terms, then you're going to get the get. But what it really comes down to in every example is wanting control over the person, but also control over the process. Divorce is scary. People feel very out of control. And the get can make some people feel a sense of security that I have the golden ticket. And if I'm really not happy with what happens in court or in mediation or in Basin or wherever we go, I have this tool I can use to make sure that I feel comfortable with the results. Then I'm going to ask a question. I feel a little bit guilty even asking this question, but I think it's okay. important. I know that some get refusing husbands, probably the vast majority of them, they have quote unquote reasons that make sense to them that they don't want to give a get. And these reasons are fundamentally invalid. But despite the fact that these reasons might be ridiculous, are there situations of almost a reverse blackmail? Let's say, for example, a woman says, I will not accept a get unless you give me full custody of the kids and give me the house and give me every single thing that you own. And if not, if you refuse to do that, even though, of course, the husband doesn't have the problem of remarrying to the same degree a woman does, but she can say, I will put you up publicly as a get refuser and it will ruin your life. And the husband's a get refuser, but because she's blackmailing him. Is such a thing possible? Does such a thing happen? So it can absolutely happen that get refusal goes both ways, that in order for the get process to be valid, the husband has to give it willingly, the wife has to receive it willingly. And if either person is not you know, participating in that party, then we have a problem. And we do work on cases where the women are refusing to receive a get. 
Now, in terms of the question, can someone go around crying wolf, essentially? Can they say, you know, I'm a victim of debt refusal when really they're the one not cooperating? Anything could happen. However, what we found is that publicity is usually something that people are, are very anxious about and that they see as a last resort. And it's a bit of a flag if someone calls and wants publicity yesterday because most people don't. And I think the benefit of having the structure of an organization like what we have at ORA is that we do vet our cases. We don't get a phone call on Monday and have a rally on Tuesday because there's a process where we get information, we speak to other parties involved. We, these are complex cases and we know that and we wanna make sure that we understand the ins and outs of the case before we jump in. So it's always helpful to have that third party vetting but again, I think that the sort of crying wolf is often just a lot less common than people think it is. Then let's talk about rallies, because Ora is known for its rallies. There was a rally last night as we record this on Monday. Do rallies actually work? Do these have an effect? I know they give publicity and that itself is a benefit. But do they actually convince recalcitrant husbands to give a get? Is there such a thing? Yes, but it depends on the case. And that's really where the strategic piece comes in. Rallies accomplish a lot of things. They can absolutely move a case forward. Sometimes that means that the person kind of comes out with their hands up and gives a get. Sometimes it means that the couple revive a negotiation that's been dead in the water for a year and sign it and move on. So it can often just mean a movement. You have these cases that get very stuck like a pickup truck in the mud and a rally can just get things going and really change the status quo. In addition to that, rallies give a lot of validation to the Aguna that people care enough. I mean, I feel like giving time is even more you know, challenging than giving money. So the fact that you have a group of people who took time out of their schedules to come and stand and you know, chant and be there, it's extremely validating for the Aguna. And it also has a really powerful deterrent effect that for every guy that says, yeah, sure, have a rally, come on over, there's 10 other people saying, mm, I don't know if I wanna be that person who will cooperate with the get because they don't want that result. So it can have a bunch of effects, but again, you have to know who you're dealing with and there can absolutely be a risk that a rally is going to radicalize the other person and make them even more entrenched in their position. It's like- Digging their heels in other words. Yes, it's like a cat running up a tree. And so you got them to move, but now they're up there 15 feet in the air, you're down here, that doesn't help you either. So you really have to know the case, know the person and make an assessment as to what's going to be effective. Yeah, I can see it turn into a power struggle, which was never there originally. And suddenly he decides that's his big cause. That's what he believes in in life. I want to ask you a little bit about blackmail, because obviously blackmail is evil and terrible. Let's say, for example, a husband says, I will give you a get if you give me X whatever it is, dollars, custody, whatever the thing might be. And the woman, his wife, his ex-wife after the get, agrees to it. Do you think that that's something that she should give into? In other words, let's say you can get the get, she'll sign over a quarter of a million dollars, let's say, and she can get the get. On the other hand, that is setting a precedent. And then the next guy might say, you know what, the same way, I don't want to have a rally, but I do want to have a quarter of a million dollars in my bank account. So maybe I can try the same thing. What's Ores or your position, Keshet, about that particular technique? So you have to separate the policy from the person in those cases. On a policy level, it's a terrible idea. And you've actually seen this in practice. There were communities that said, well, our solution to the Aguna problem is that when 
um, recalcitrant spouse makes a demand for money, we'll put a collection plate, we'll send a hat around, we'll gather the money and we'll pay him. And they found very quickly that people who might not have even planned on being get refusers were eagerly jumping in because who doesn't want a million dollars? Why not? And so policy-wise, it's a terrible idea. However, when it comes to individual negotiation, settlement offers, et cetera, it's such a personal decision. If a woman is being extorted for $300,000 and she has the money to pay it and she wants to move on with her life, in my opinion, she has to be able to make the choice that's best for her without worrying about the policy. As an organization, we can worry about the policy. So if you ask us, Ora, can you raise $300,000 for me to pay off a get refuser? That's not what we do because we don't think it's an effective way to solve the problem. But if you want to ask us our opinion as an individual, it's your life, it's your choice, and you should be able to do what works. Plus, there are often difficult decisions in a divorce negotiation. So for example, if you're being offered a settlement that gives you $10,000 less than you're entitled to, but it would cost you $70,000 in legal fees to go to court and get that $10,000, it doesn't make sense. So the kind of costs and benefits of different offers and different settlements is a complicated question and one that people really need to make with their attorneys, with their advisors, and ideally in a place where they feel like they have another option. If you take the deal, but you know that you could have a rally or a social media campaign, you feel differently about it than if you take a deal because you feel that you're up with your back against a wall and there are no other choices. In that case, Kesha, let me ask you about a recent event that happened in Israel, I think last week, where a well-known member of Knesset agreed to guarantee the blackmail of a particular recalcitrant husband. He had asked for 650,000 shekels, that's about 200,000 bucks, in order to give the get. The Beitin said yes, but of course, the husband, I suppose, needed a guarantor. And this Haver Knesset, member of Knesset, agreed to be the guarantor. So on the one hand, this is a very generous act. And people are impressed that he was willing to do it. His personal, I assume his personal guarantee was the reason that she was able to get the get. Other activists, however, said this is awful. He's simply furthering the problem by publicly allowing such a thing to happen. What you mentioned before about making it almost a policy. This is getting huge publicity, at least within that small world of get refusal. Is this something you can support? What's your feeling about it? I think that especially coming from a public figure, it's not the most helpful way to help. That if what you want to do is help the issue, make a difference, be a champion for Agunot, in my opinion, this is not how you do it, simply because the policy issues are so profound. Plus, not every Aguna is going to have someone in such a position of power guaranteeing these payments. There's a lot of challenges involved. And again, I think that as a public figure, you really have to be a lot more careful. As a private individual, there are people who have money and want to help. However, I would still say if you have money and want to help, there is a lot of positive change you can create with that money that will go a lot further than paying off a get refuser. So I, I don't think it's the best use of money for people who want to see issue change. Okay, I want to move on to something you said when I asked my first question, and you talked about a corrupt bait in a corrupt court, a corrupt Jewish court. Why is a court corrupt? What does that even mean? I understand that not all rabbis are tzaddikim, are righteous. I'm not pretending to be naive. But what does it mean when a court is on the side of the get refuser? What are they thinking? 
So what is really different about the Beaton system in the US versus Israel, and Israel has its own challenges, but in the US, it's almost a wild west where there's no sort of registry of religious courts that every court has to follow and you know go along with a certain set of ethical guidelines. Anyone can open a Beaton at any time. It can be everything from an institution with published rules and procedures to a guy who's working out of his basement with two other random people. So you have tremendous variation in guidelines, standards, procedures, and values among all of these Bateten. And in some cases, you have an institution that holds itself out as a Beaton, as a court, but that is blatantly corrupt. And there are several like that out there where we'll joke sometimes it's not just money under the table, there's money over the table. Um, the litigant can come back and say, I don't like this ruling. And the Beaton says, okay, what should it say instead? So you have a huge range out there. And that's partly why, especially in the US, you have to be extremely careful where you go because signing an arbitration agreement with a crazy Beaton over here and a legitimate one over there, it has the same legal backing. And the legal system in the United States, because of the Constitution, is not going to start analyzing which Beaton is good, which Beaton is bad. They are not going to touch that with the 10 foot pole. So it's really like a buyer beware situation. You have to know where you're going, you have to get advice, and you have to go to a reliable forum because otherwise you can end up in a, a very bad situation. How would someone know what is a reliable Beitin? You can call us. We have a helpline at ORA that gives that information. But it's really a question of calling a Jewish divorce professional, the average even pulpit rabbi. They're not necessarily dealing with the volume, hopefully for their sake, of highly contentious divorces that would give them the most information on where to go. So you really wanna to go to a resource that understands these very, very bad divorces and can guide you appropriately. And if you're coming out of a domestic abuse situation, you have to be even more careful because Domestic abusers are often super charming, super manipulative, really excel at getting systems to work to their advantage. And so if you're coming up against someone like that, you have to be 10 times more careful about where you're going because an inexperienced forum is not necessarily going to see through the manipulation that the other person offers. And we'll definitely include the helpline from Aura in the show notes for this podcast. I mentioned before the corrupt bait din, but last night, for example, in this rally for the Kin case that was taking place, a very, a very widely publicized rally, what shocked me was my wife showed me some videos of it, and they were counter-protesters. This isn't the corrupt bait din. This isn't the husband. This is people protesting the protesters. What are they thinking? What's going through their minds? So it's interesting. We in I don't know if I'd say engage, but we're definitely targeted quite a bit at Aura by a lot of this population. And I would say that most of, you have these online groups that are kind of orthodox men's rights groups that really feel that men are being persecuted and that men have used to have all these rights that were stripped away from them. There's a real sense of powerlessness. I'm familiar with the divorce case of almost every single person in these groups, and they've been through some situations personally that definitely impact how they feel about these things. And 
listen, the internet does a lot of beautiful things, but one of the downsides is that it can bring extremists together and give them a sense of sort of a social context and encouragement in a way that if you didn't have the internet, you might not be able to get on your own. And many of these guys do not have power in the world. They are not out there doing great things in the community. They're living pretty isolated lives. They have very limited sort of power in their personal lives. And through these online forums, they have a sense of power and importance and they get a lot of self-confidence from that. So that's my armchair psychology. I'm not a okay. psychologist, but um, that's my guess as to what's going on. And again, they really feel that Agunod are all crying wolf, that men should have the power to use the get in whatever way they want to, that domestic abuse is not a real thing. They have all of these beliefs that are really counter to what we believe as an organization and what as a community we are increasingly believing. Let's talk about the halachic prenup. First of all, can you explain what is a halachic prenup? Sure. So a halachic prenup is a document that you can sign before you're married and actually afterwards, you can sign it as a postnup as well, that prevents the get from being an issue later on. So it doesn't automatically require a get, that's a common misconception, but it basically creates an incentive system where you avoid a lot of the pitfalls in the process and it encourages a get to be given early and unconditionally. How does it do that? Yeah, so there's two pieces. The first is that it's an arbitration commitment to a single baked in which no one gets excited about because arbitration just sounds boring. But when we think about the range of Bate Din out there, how you have great ones and crazy ones and everything in between, the beauty of a prenup is that it commits you to a good Baton in advance. And this is the moment where people aren't playing games. That can happen later, but they're not doing that yet. Right. On the flip side, and in addition to the arbitration piece, the prenup also builds in a halachic support obligation. So the idea is that you can't kind of have your halachic cake and eat it too. If you want to stay married, i.e. not give a get, which means that you're still religiously married, then okay, you can stay married, awesome. But part of Jewish marriage is that it comes with obligations and that you have to actually support your spouse at the tune of $150 a day, which works out to about 54,000 a year. And that amount just continues and continues and continues until the get is given. And it's separate from any other legal support obligation, child support, spousal support, anything else. And so it basically creates an incentive where it's not worth it to delay the gap because otherwise I just have to keep paying this money indefinitely. I might as well give the gap now. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen in my work at ORA is that some of the worst cases are the ones where there isn't intervention until it's really late. That when you are scrolling Instagram and you see a case and someone has been waiting for a get for 15 years, that is gonna be a very, very hard case to solve because after 15 years, that person is stuck in concrete. They are not moving easily. Where if you could have intervened in that same case when they were three months into the divorce, it would have been a completely different story, even with the same people and the same personalities. So one of the biggest benefits of a prenup is that it kicks the get to the beginning of the process. It encourages a get early before they have a seven-year court battle over the divorce or whatever else might happen. 
And it just encourages the get out of the way, which again is huge when we think about that extortion piece. If we deal with the get, it's off the table, then everyone can negotiate in good faith. And there isn't this element of negotiating with a gun on the wall that everyone knows is there and could be used at any time. So it changes the way negotiations work and the prenup really avoids a lot of those issues. Now, is the reason that the prenup is $150 is a lot, but it's not a huge amount, meaning we're not talking $1,000 a day, is that to avoid the problem of get Musa, which would be a coerced get? Absolutely. You can change the amount. Some people do. However, what you need to be careful about is that it's really important that it's a support obligation and not a penalty. Because once it becomes a penalty, we then start having issues with the validity of the get. And of course, given the stakes involved, we don't want situations where it gets given and it's questionable and no one can really feel secure in it. So it has to be connected enough to how the couple live that we can say this is a support obligation. And if you live in a penthouse in Manhattan, then your daily needs might run quite a bit higher than if you live in a suburban home in Kansas. So there can be some natural variation there, but we do want to be careful that we're not putting in huge amounts of money that then turn it into a penalty in a way that would impact the validity of the gag. And I assume that American courts accept this as a valid document. Yes, it's been challenged in court. It's been upheld in court and by pretty high level courts as well. The beauty of the prenup in American law is that it's public policy in American law to really support arbitration. And the reason for that is that what courts want more than anything is to get people out of court. They're overloaded and they want to clear their dockets. So there's almost a bias in the court system towards upholding arbitration because the more we uphold arbitration, the more we keep people out of the court system. And this is an arbitration document, just as you might sign one with an employer, with a business partner, in any other relationship, it's an arbitration document And a court can analyze it using secular principles of contract law. The court doesn't need to get into anything religious, which, of course, in the U.S. would be a huge problem if it did. And the courts also accept the support requirement as well? Yes, because it's adjudicated by the beat-in. So all the court really needs to analyze is whether or not this is a valid arbitration agreement. Because Mm -hmm. once it's a valid arbitration agreement, then whatever the arbitrator says goes because that's really the basis of how arbitration works. So the key is, did you sort of knowingly and willingly sign yourself to this forum? If you did, forum tells you to jump up and down 15 times, that's what you have to do. That you you have, of course, some limits, but not very many. How about halakhically? How widely is it accepted among halakhic authorities? In the modern Orthodox community, it's very much become the norm. As we get into more yeshivish, Hasidish, Haredi communities, It's a conversation now in a way that it wasn't several years ago. And I would say, you know, predating the social media piece, but just in the past year or two, there's been a lot more movement and traction on this issue. You definitely see situations where Rabbanim might say privately, I think it's a good idea. They're not necessarily going to write a letter and sign their name on it. But communities are discussing it, and we're also seeing some alternative versions of the prenup come out that are really targeted towards a more Haredi audience. And so there really is movement and growth. And even in the modern Orthodox community, it took years of advocacy to make it the norm. 
because very often I think as a in Orthodox community, we don't always love super new things. And there's often a discomfort that you have this young couple and they're starting their lives together. Who wants and- to talk about divorce now? Exactly. It's not nice. It's stressful. It's not I romantic. mean, you talk about it under the chuppah when you read the ketuvah. So. Exactly. So I always say, if you don't want to talk about divorce before marriage, you might be in the wrong religion because it's right. really built into our marriage structure. This is not a rainbows and unicorns, you know, marriage. We hang it on our walls. We do. And there's actually something compelling about that, where I think you can make the case that what is really powerful about Jewish law and Jewish marriage is that it's realistic. It's not rainbows and unicorns. It recognizes that life happens, that people can be at risk, and it provides protections to make sure that that doesn't happen. And that's real love. It's like the life insurance commercials. Real love is making sure that the other person is taken care of no matter what and is treated well no matter what. And if we are marrying someone, we should want that for them. But I think it does take time for that to become culturally normative enough that it doesn't feel weird or awkward. I do say, and this is my own editorial comment, you don't have to comment on it as well, but when you say the people in some of the more yeshivish communities will privately say, some will privately say, I agree with you, but they're not going to make it public, I find that very, very discouraging and very upsetting. But that's a different point for a different podcast. I want to ask you about that real love thing that you just mentioned, because you said it can also be a post-nup. And would you recommend that couples happily married for 40 years still do a post-nup to make a statement? Or is it really just a tekes, as we would say here, a ceremony that's not necessary? What's your take on that? Absolutely. Couples that have been married 40 years should do it because they're going to be the most secure in their relationships, one would hope. That part of why it can be hard to bring this in for the first time is that an engaged couple is not that secure yet. They don't know each other that well. They've not been through the ups and downs of life together. And when you see we've had couples married 50 years sign a post-nup, it really sends the message more loudly than anything else we could do or say that this is not something you do because you feel insecure about your relationship. It's something you do because you care about the Jewish community and you're, I hope no one signing it thinks they're going to need it, but you sign it because someone else out there is going to need it. And if you can be part of making sure that that mysterious other person is protected, why not? We're part of a community where we care about each other and we want the best for each other. And we have the chance to do this small, easy thing that can be a game changer and a life changer for another person. A lot of my listeners, probably most of them are in the United States, but a lot are not in the United States. So if you're not in the United States, does the ORA prenup work or do you need a different one? So we often have couples sign the Beth of America prenup. You can sign that prenup, which has a an Israel version that defaults to an arbitration panel in Israel. One of the challenging things actually right now about the prenup world in Israel is that there are a bunch of prenups out there. So on one hand, it's great. You have a lot of choices. On the other hand, when you're already up at night trying to decide what color flowers to have, it can be another thing that you have to deal with and think about. But we also, one aspect of our work at ORA is that we help couples figure this out. If you're making Aliyah or you live in Israel and you're not sure which prenup to sign, we'll talk you through, here's what's out there, here are the pros and cons, what works best for you. And we, because we believe in the prenup so much and we've seen it work so successfully, we want to make sure that it's a smooth and easy process for couples to sign. I've heard some people who are so upset and sickened by what's going on with Agunot 
that they recommend even more radical procedures than just doing a halachic prenup. And I don't mean just, I don't mean that in a negative sense, but they say we have to go even further. Some, for example, and these are people who care about halacha, they say we have to get rid of classic kiddushin, the classic marriage contract and the classic marriage situation altogether and find a halachic alternative. I'm not necessarily agreeing with this. I'm simply presenting a position which I've heard many times. Their solutions are radical, but their proponents would argue that the problem of get refusal is so serious that we need to find radical answers. What's your feeling about that? It's such a difficult and important question. And I I would say two things. One of the absolute hardest parts of advocacy work, probably for any issue, but definitely for this one, is finding that line between idealism and realism. That an idea can be perfect, but if it's a perfect idea that no one uses, it's not going to create change in the community. So it's very, very important that any solution we think about is also looped in to the realities of leadership in our communities, of the culture of our communities, of the change tolerance of our different communities. Because again, you can have the perfect solution that solves 100% of get refusal cases. And if only one person signs that document, that's not helping anybody. And so you really have to think about where is the line between what's idealistic and what's practical. And one of the things that I love about the prenup is that I think it toes that line in a much more realistic way that getting rid of Kedushin, putting aside the halakhic complexities involved, I just don't see our community signing up for that in any sort of realistic numbers. And the other piece is that a lot of our work at OREB, one of the benefits I think is that we do a lot of community education work, but we're also working on real life cases. So the theory and the practice can never get too far apart, which is a huge value. And many of the people that we work with are not interested in a radical solution. They're interested in a traditional get that they can take to a traditional shadchan to get set up with a nice, normal guy in their community. That's what they want. And so we also have to think if we're offering a solution that doesn't match up with the needs and the desires of the people who have the problem, then are we doing it for us or are we doing it for them? And there's sometimes a a clash there where this solution might make me feel good, but if the vast majority of people suffering with this issue are saying, nope, that doesn't serve my needs, we really have to make sure we're having those conversations and we're tuning in to the voices of the people living this because they have, I think, an authority that even those of us with expertise on this issue can't fully touch. So I will say for me, most of the voices that I've spoken to of people going through this are looking for traditional solutions and a radical solution has to be realistic in the community in order to have traction. And there could be some great ideas that might just not be realistic enough to actually become used and therefore become effective. Kind of like the Talmud says, go see what the people do, being a normative halachic idea. So in your view, you're saying there's no real way that we can completely eliminate the problem of agunot given the complexities of social structures and expectations. Unlikely at this moment. That's not to say that it can't change over time. That you know, halacha is a. The beauty of halacha is that it's a living thing, right? We have all these halachos over. Can I use my iPhone on Shabbos? There wasn't an iPhone in the Gemara, so halacha is a living, breathing, evolving thing. 
However, I think that looking at the world today, I don't see that as being particularly likely. Then again, there are people who say the prenup is unlikely, and I feel like with enough education and awareness, it doesn't need to be. So you're always going to have different voices. But um, again, I, I think it's a complex enough issue that we all have to be hesitant of magic bullets. That even the prenup, I would say the prenup is powerful because it helps the couple and it changes the conversation in the community. Is it a magic bullet that will make sure that there is never, ever in the history of humanity another Aguna case ever, ever? No, I wouldn't say that. I don't think there's any tool that can genuinely argue that. So the question is, what's going to resolve the most cases? What's going to take care of the culture problem and the case problem and do both together at the same time as much as we can? But it, it's a complex issue and you're not really going to have one magic bullet that solves the whole problem for the entire community across the board. Okay, I do hear that. So we're almost out of time. Let me ask you one final question with two parts. I want to ask you, Keshet, in your ideal world, or Ora's ideal world, I don't know if you and Ora are fully identified with each other, but let's call it your ideal world. If everything happens the way that you and Ora would like it to happen, what would the world look like, our orthodox world? And the second question that goes along with that is, what has to happen to get to that ideal place? So the way our world would look like is that every single couple signs a prenup, that it's a built-in part of the process that we don't think twice about, just like we go get our marriage license or we, you know, book the wedding singer or whatever it is, that the vast, vast majority of cases are resolved by the prenup, that the small minority of cases that for whatever reason might slip out of the sides of the prenup will be addressed by a team of caring, committed halachic decisors who are working to find solutions for those cases. And that we have a cultural norm where we understand domestic abuse. We think we understand it, we usually don't. And where we really condemn it and where we draw the lines around our communal structures and say that if you're engaging in abuse actively, you can't be here. You can stop and join us, we're happy to have you, but you can't be actively engaging in abuse and be part of our communities. And in terms of what we need to get there, I think we need a lot of education and awareness. I think we need consistent education and awareness. If you go to a high school every five years, you miss an entire generation of students in between. It's not enough. So right. we really need to make sure that we're starting young. I think high school is a great age, that we're educating students in a really systematic way where they've ideally heard about the prenup two or three times before they get engaged. And I think we need a better understanding of what abuse is. We think we do. I can't tell you how many questions I've gotten about, well, how do you know that not physical abuse is really abuse? And sometimes when my husband and I get into a fight, we're not nice to each other. There, there's a real gap in understanding as to how emotional and sexual and financial and spiritual abuse actually work and look like. So we need to understand those better. And we need to feel the senses of power that we have. That one of the most exciting things about what's been going on on Instagram is that I feel like certain communities realize that they had power for the first time. Where as a community, when we stand up and say, we're not okay with this and we're gonna draw a line and this behavior is gonna be outside of it, as a close-knit community, we actually have a tremendous amount of power to do that in a way that the wider secular world doesn't always. But we have that as a close-knit insular community and we need to use it. And I, I think we imagine a world where communities feel empowered to 
draw those lines, to set those boundaries, and to really demand that if you want to be part of us, this is how you have to behave. And to be consistent with our values and to live our Torah in the way that we behave in our most intimate relationships, as well as, you know, what we do or say at the Shul Kiddush, whenever that comes back. So to really have a, a consistency of the internal and the external in that way. Well, Keshet Star, the work that you and Ora are doing is very inspiring, and it's not for me to thank you, but I do thank you for doing what you're doing because it's very important. You're providing an irreplaceable service for the Orthodox community and for the Jewish community at large. So thank you, and thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been great to be here and to discuss. Thank you for joining me. Remember to go to jewishcoffeehouse.com for lots of great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chuchmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, Let My People Eat, and more. You can also find my blog, The Scott Conversation, there. Please also share this podcast so we can get the word out about the Orthodox conundrum to an even bigger audience. And please consider becoming a Jewish Coffeehouse patron by going to our Patreon page. The link is in the description of this podcast. For a small monthly donation, you decide how much or how little. You can get extra episodes, articles, merch, and more while also supporting our work. So please check it out today. I'm Scott Kahn, and this has been the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com.